Bible says that Elijah was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and he went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. It's 1 Kings 19 verse 3. We had no red flags, uh, her parents told the Today Show last month after their daughter, who by all appearances was a thriving young woman, a D1 athlete at a prestigious university after she took her own life. We're going to talk this morning about mental health and depression and suicide, and I'll say from the start, if these are subjects that for whatever reason you're not ready to talk about, then I'll give you some space. To, to step out. These are matters the church needs to talk about because matters of mental health have touched or will touch every life in this room, most likely in a heartbreaking way. We need to talk about this because, and I choose my words carefully, our nation is in the midst of a mental health crisis. Our Surgeon General recently called it an epidemic. And the toll on human lives, particularly among adolescents, is just staggering. In his best-selling book, The Happiness Trap, Russ Harris points to the research that says, almost one in two people will go through a stage in life where they seriously consider suicide and will struggle with it for a period of two weeks or more. Scarier still, one in ten will at some point actually attempt to kill themselves. Harris writes, think about those numbers for a moment. Think about your friends, your family, your coworkers. Almost half of them, half the people in this room, will at some point be so overwhelmed by misery that they seriously contemplate suicide. And we need to talk about this because the church often makes matters worse. Sometimes the helpers hurt, as do misguided notions about what it means to be strong are resilient or faithful. No wonder these topics are often hushed, suffered in silence. So I want us to look this morning uh, first at what's not new, what's not new about depression. Secondly, what is new. Third, why the church ought to have unique resources to care for the hurting among us and around us. And lastly, I want us to look at how the Lord cares for Elijah. Back in the text I referenced earlier, from 1 Kings 19 to give us some <clears throat> guidepost for how we might uh, care for those we love who are depressed or struggling with mental illness. You might wonder what qualifications I have as somewhat of a guest preacher to speak about such a sensitive matter. Well, I'm not competent to speak on these matters. I do stand before you as someone um, who has a little bit of firsthand experience and I want to be of some comfort with the comfort I've received from others. I'm talking about this because I know there are too many in this room who are suffering alone, afraid to raise your hands with no one to help. What's not new? To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to bear the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die, to sleep. High school students recognize that speech from Shakespeare's Hamlet, probably the most famous literary allusion 
to a question that sooner or later most any sensitive soul will wrestle with. Why should I go on living? In his essay on friendship, Ralph Waldo Emerson suggests depression might well be an act of sanity. To look around this world at times and think to yourself, am I the only one who thinks this is crazy? What people seem to care about or not care about? Wendell Berry wrote, going against men, I have heard at times a deep harmony thrumming in the mixture, suggesting that contrariness might well be a sign of mental health. The Bible agrees with Wendell Berry. The Bible's not a textbook. It's preeminently a book of stories, true stories about men and women navigating life with God. And the truth is, life is difficult. So it should come as no surprise that the Bible is full of stories about men and women of deep faith who no longer wish to live. If you're a note taker, jot these references down. I already mentioned Elijah from 1 Kings 19. But if you go back and read that story in context, fresh off what should have been the high point of his professional life. I mean, 1 Kings 18 ends with this vivid demonstration of God's reality and power through him. You'd think Elijah would have been on top of the world. And yet he was exhausted physically and emotionally. He felt isolated. He says, I'm all alone. He felt like a failure. He says, it is enough now, Lord. Take my life for I'm no better than my father's. The prophet Jonah, also fresh off a rousing success, said, Lord, please take away my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He says, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. We seldom realize that beneath so much of the anger we see around us or within us, underneath so much anger is often a real deep sadness. Moses, in the book of Numbers, Moses says of the responsibilities that he felt placed on his shoulders. He said, the burden is too heavy for me. And he says to the Lord, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Version of which I've heard confided more than a few times privately. Job, in light of his circumstances, goes further. Why did I not die at birth? Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death? It's Job 3. Prophet Jeremiah voices a similar lament to Job. He hears the messengers around him speaking peace, peace, but when Jeremiah looks around, what all he sees in his culture, he says it just makes him want to weep day and night. But they think he's the crazy one and throw him in a hole. See Jeremiah 38. Why are you bringing us down, Jeremiah? Depression can have many sources in the wake of their family conflict. Rebecca says to Isaac, this is Genesis 27, 46, I am weary of my life. When you see the people you love suffering, the prophet describes Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Infertility. In the face of her infertility, Hannah would not eat. She was deeply depressed. And she wept bitterly. And the Bible says, and this went on year after year. That's 1 Samuel 1. God gave Solomon a wise and understanding heart, Solomon, and yet at one point he says, this is Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17, I hated life because all that was done under the sun was grievous to me. All is vanity. King David, the man after God's own heart, 
The Psalms are full of his poetry, and his poetry is full of metaphors because David understood only metaphors, only metaphors can capture the complexity depression can contain. At one point, he says, it's like drowning. Psalm 69, the waters have come up to my neck. He says, it's like a crushing weight on your chest. Psalm 32, my bones wasted away. Your hand was heavy upon me. It's like being at the end of your rope, Psalm 61, battered like a tottering fence, Psalm 62. You feel like a wounded animal, Psalm 38. Or take the Apostle Paul. Paul, this was years after his conversion. Something happened to him, we're not told what, but this man, the same one who would write from prison, rejoice in the Lord always, and I say again, rejoice. Yet Paul also writes this. This is 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul, after all he'd experienced, reached a breaking point where he was overwhelmed by his troubles. I mean, if the Bible's to be our guide, then maybe feeling like this is not a measure of a lack of faith, but an indication that more is seen to be fit, more is seen fit to be placed upon some shoulders than others. <clears throat> and those are just characters from the Bible. From church history, there's Augustine. Before and after his conversion, he navigated severe depression. There's Julian of Norwich. There's Teresa of Avila. Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits. Martin Luther, father of the Reformation. The great hymn writer, William Cooper, who wrote God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century prince of preachers, struggled with depression all of his life. Thomas Merton. Henry Nowen, Mother Teresa, Walker Percy, just to name a few. Have you considered that maybe their words still resonate from across the centuries? Because as another esteemed author, Parker Palmer, once put it, the closer you get to the light, the closer you also get to the darkness. I do not class myself with the men and women of scripture or the great saints of church history. I wish I could tell you I was self-aware enough to even recognize it in myself, but in my case, it took some professional help from a very skilled therapist before I could even see, let alone admit, you know, I might be depressed. Took a great deal of work before I had the courage as a Christian leader to admit to anyone, let alone to myself. Sometimes those hurting the most aren't even aware of it. You're not even aware of it. But sooner or later, it will come out. For as one book puts it, the body keeps the score. The body keeps the score. But I do want you to know that God's people are not immune from deep, dark, debilitating, inscrutable depression, even to the point of despairing of life, where the promises of God seem to have ceased Read Psalm 77 sometime. And I want you to hear me say very clearly for you or someone you love, depression is not a sin. I've never met anyone in my life fighting a mental illness who wanted to feel the way they did. And they already feel so much shame because they don't like this about themselves. 
the way they feel, their bodies, the way their minds work. And for those of you in this room who've lost someone to suicide, suicide is not, it is not the unpardonable sin. It's covered by the grace of God, like all of our sins. Mental illness can lead to destructive behaviors, but it's not a character defect any more than a brain tumor or a stroke would be. It's no sign of a lack of faith or faithfulness. It's no sign that you are not a beloved child of God. I hope in this short tour I've convinced you that dear saints of God can be depressed. This is not new. Neither is it new that the pain can be more excruciating than any physical affliction you could possibly experience. I mean, if you were suffering physically so much it impaired your ability to function, you'd tend to it eventually, or those who cared about you would insist that you did. So why are we not just as attentive to what can be even more serious and more painful wounds? Why is there stigma around mental health issues? And why is there sometimes even more of one among God's people? Given all the metaphors and stories in our own book. It's like we haven't read it. Well, that's not new. What is new? What is new? While depression and anxiety, and those terms are related, but they're not synonymous, are not new, they are showing up in new ways and at shocking new levels. Here are just a couple of statistics. From 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel, quote, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness has risen from 26 to 44%. One in two high school kids feels this way. In college, the Mayo Clinic says 45% of college students, 44% have symptoms of depression and anxiety. I talked to a city leader in Evansville this week. He told me mental health among city leaders is one of the top five municipal concerns in our city. And I want you to know all those numbers are pre-pandemic. This was before COVID. You probably saw last week a panel of experts recommended all pediatricians begin screening children as young as eight years old for anxiety based on the rising prevalence of diagnoses among the very young. Okay, it's not just your kid who's having a hard time. And you may wonder, you know, what's causing this swell? I already mentioned this uh, epidemic of loneliness. Surely technology, social media plays a part. There's our hurry sickness, our diet, our lack of sleep. There's the breakdown of agreed upon standards to follow what the sociologist Emile Durkheim called anomie, a social sickness. There's also the incredible weight of expectations we place on ourselves in a society that prizes radical individualism. But I just want you to see this. Here's a tragic irony. Just as our culture is becoming more aware of depression and less afraid of its stigma, the church often just reinforces the stigma of mental health by marginalizing, sometimes even disciplining people for these struggles, suggesting one way or another, as Jane Kenyon put it in her poem, Having It Out With Melancholy, quote, you wouldn't be so depressed if you really believed in God. Sometimes the helpers hurt the most. 
When religious folk, teacher, imply that it is a deficit of faith or a flaw in your character, you know all that does among us is perpetuate a culture of hiding and pretense and superficiality. All too often, churches send the message that faithfulness cannot coincide with sadness or doubt or any kind of negativity, but it has to look like positivity and prosperity and victory. So if you're not feeling those things, you better stay away or fake it because low maintenance equals godliness. So you smile, you put on your Sunday best, and you say, I'm fine. I've told you, next time someone says that to you, I'm fine, you remember what they're telling you. I'm frightened, I'm insecure, I'm neurotic, and I'm exhausted. That's what fine means. I'm fine. And that's a tragic irony. That is a tragic irony because rightly understood, Christianity provides unrivaled resources for understanding and treating depression and other forms of mental illness. And our churches need to recover a depth that speaks to the heart and mind. Because rightly understood, Christianity has unique resources to care for the hurting. Let me just rattle off five, and for each, I'll give you a scripture verse as a springboard for your own imagination. First, Christianity gives us permission. Permission to be a human being. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Notice in this case what propels the compassion, for he knows our frame. Yes, we are images of God with a glorious destiny. At the same time, we are frail children of dust. And as the old hymn puts it, and feeble is frail, finite and fallen. Far more than we care to admit, we are stained with that human stain all the way through. Swing low, sweet chariot, because we are a mess, you and I. But not all of our weaknesses are attributable to our sin. The Bible tells us the truth about the human condition. It tells us that our human condition is one of desperation and need. That we stand in desperate need of God's mercy and grace, not just when we begin the Christian life, but all the way through to forgive us and cleanse us. Now, yes, our pride resists these things that cast us down to the ground. We seldom stop to consider what Parker Palmer, I mentioned earlier, a deeply respected Christian author who struggled with depression most of his 30s and 40s, what he said his therapist once said to him. Parker, you seem to look upon depression as the hand of an enemy trying to crush you. Do you think you could see it instead as the hand of a friend pressing you down underground? on which it's safe to stand. He that is down need fear no further fall. The gospel of grace, it humbles us like nothing else, but then it picks us up, and that's good news, because it gives us permission to admit the ground of our being, permission to be a human being. And I want to tell you, there are so many of us in this room, we just need a hand on our shoulder to give us permission. You have permission to be a human being, to let your guard down, to laugh at yourself. That's a sign of mental health. And extend some compassion to yourself because the Lord does. Would you look at that 
You happen to be a human being. Second, Christianity gives a comprehensive way to make sense of our depression. Jesus speaks to the whole person. He said, this is Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. One of the best-selling books and most helpful books on depression is The Noonday Demon by Andrew Solomon. Solomon points out, quote, grief is depression in proportion to circumstance, while depression is grief out of proportion to our circumstance. And that's one of the hardest things about depression is the inscrutable nature of it. You have to understand depression is a war on three fronts. It's a war on three fronts. And to be treated with care, all three fronts must be addressed. And only classic Christianity accounts for this human complexity. It says to the medical community, yes, yes, depression can have a chemical, biological, physiological component. So we need to treat it with medicine. That's physical health because our bodies matter. We're embodied souls. It says to the therapeutic community, yes, your depression often has a circumstantial element. You were depressed because you should be. You should be because you have gone through terrible, awful things. Where deep sadness is not just understandable, something would be wrong with you if you did not let yourself feel these deep emotions. I mean, the Bible is filled with men and women who are crying out to God with every stripe of human emotion, which is an incredible consolation if you think about it, that God knows how men and women will speak to him when we are desperate. He gives us the words. Most of us can't get to this point without some help. Professional. Deep work is often needed to suss out the roots. Rollo May once said, only the strong seek help. The weak are too afraid to admit they need it. So next time you or a friend says they had to get some help, you remember what the foremost psychologist of the 20th century said, that it's the strong that raise their hand and say, I need some help. Those who don't are too weak to admit they need it. That's emotional health. That's emotional health because your emotions matter. On the third front with the, <clears throat> the spiritual Christianity says, yes, depression will often have a spiritual component. You're under duress. You're not seeing things clearly. Yourself, others, or God. You're forgetting who you are in Christ and all you've been given in Christ. But that's not all on you. There are enemies you have in this world that are real, invisible, and malignant. M. Scott Peck came to faith in, in Christ in his 40s. After he was already a best-selling author, Peck wrote, mental health is an ongoing commitment to reality no matter the cost. An ongoing commitment to reality. So how could mental health not include spirituality if it's a commitment to reality? One reason the incidence of depression and mental health concerns are spiking is the bifurcation of these communities. If you only fight a war on one front, you will never win. You'll never win. Christianity brings together voices that have to be working together. It says, yes, physical and chemical. Yes, emotional and circumstantial. Yes, alongside the spiritual. These are all components of mental health required to care for the whole person, heart, mind, and soul. 
See, whenever you or someone you love is suffering, all three variables are at play. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. All three variables are at play, and you don't know the percentages. You don't know the percentages. All you know is it's a war on three fronts, and all three have to be addressed for health. If you only treat one, for instance, if you only give medication, you're not treating the whole person. Medication is like anesthesia. It can be necessary. But one of the dangers of only taking medication is that because it can be effective in treating the symptoms, you end up bypassing the surgery needed to address the underlying needs that anesthesia cannot heal. Or if you ignore the emotional component, as some faith communities are wont to do, you can end up with a very intellectualized faith. You have all the right words, but there is a total disconnect from your heart. Very little sympathy. Now, you may think I'm being unfair, but I'll just put the question to you. Is the church a safe place to raise your hand and admit that you're feeling terribly frightened? Which is a tragic irony. Because third, at the center of our faith, at the center of our faith is a Savior who took on flesh. The Bible says, this is Hebrews 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Facing the prospect of going to the cross and bearing all that weight, the sin of the world. But it was not the physical pain. It was the mental anguish. So much so our Lord said he felt overwhelmed. Charles Spurgeon did not shrink from calling this, quote, the mental depression of our Lord. And Richard Winner, who's the director of counseling at Covenant Seminary, writes, it is an unspeakable consolation that our Lord knows this experience. Whatever mental anguish you are suffering, the Bible says Jesus is able to sympathize with us in every weakness. That means no matter what hell, no matter what hell you are walking through, that you have a wonderful counselor who is always on call and who understands. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus reappears to his disciples after his resurrection, <clears throat> that he still has his scars? Jesus is the only person in heaven, far as we know, who still has scars and will bear them for all eternity. Because it's his glory. It's his glory to display who he is and what he's done. That's who he always is. He's always the wounded healer. That's his glory. He lives to help the wounded, the broken, the outcast. The broken down are those who've had breakdowns. And he's the wisest counselor able to help us because he has been there. Deeper than any hell you could ever feel. So he's able to help us in our time of need. He is the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Fourth, Christianity rightly practiced provides a community of solidarity and suffering. 
Describing this new community, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, Matthew 5, verse 4. So we have this eloquent statement on our wall of our mission to the city. You know, the only way that mission statement is going to be actualized is strangely through our becoming a community of shared suffering. Did you know that's what the writers of In and Out, some of you saw that movie, it's the highest grossing Pixar film of all time, of all time. They discovered the only emotion that creates genuine human community is sadness. In that little girl's head, Riley, if you saw the movie, sadness plays the key role. And it took Disney years to get this movie made because they said, how can, how can we make a movie where sadness is the central character? We're Disney. Highest grossing film of all time because it works, because it's true. It's true. Because like Elijah left to ourselves, we can't see. We are blinded in our pain. Elijah said, it is enough. Now, Lord, please take my life. He couldn't see. His story wasn't over. Think of all Elijah would have missed. All the good from a future he could not imagine. He couldn't imagine what God had in store for him, and neither can we. So how much more we need a community of shared suffering to remind us. You can't see it, but you have no idea how God can turn this darkness, this hell that you feel right now, into a new day. That's his way. That's Easter. That's God's way. I mean, it's supposed to be the one thing that when we gather on a Sunday morning that we know we all have in common. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I mean, who are we kidding? This is a hospital waiting room. That's why we're here. And fifth, we have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. John 14, 15. For those of you who belong to Christ, this wonderful counselor is not just a beautiful idea, but a powerful personal presence whom Jesus calls the helper or the comforter. In his wonderful book, Spurgeon's Sorrows, which details <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon's lifelong struggle with and sympathy for those burdened with depression, Zach Aswine tells the story that Spurgeon, in his private study, cherished a certain picture. It was from the moment in the book Pilgrim's Progress in which Christian panics. He's swallowed up by the depths of a river. He's drowning. He's going under. And the painting showed Christian's companion named Hopeful pushing up with his arms around, lifting Christian up, lifting his hands up and shouting, Fear not, brother. I feel the bottom. Don't you know when you're so utterly burdened that you feel like you're going under that you have a counselor who understands and by his spirit, Jesus lifts our head and says, fear not, little one. I will never let you go. The water is deep, but I feel the bottom. Just have a couple of moments left. So in closing, I just want you to look at how the Lord cares for Elijah as a way forward for us to begin to care for those we love who are suffering from depression. First, do let them rest. Let them rest. If you go back and read the account of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 with which we began, the first thing we're told after Elijah prays that he would die, the first thing we're told is that he fell asleep. 
Now, those of you who've suffered from depression know that rest by itself does not cure, but physical and emotional exhaustion is often behind our sense of feeling overwhelmed. Just overwhelmed. You can care for them by urging them to, to cut back everything to the degree that's possible. He makes me lie down. David says in Psalm 23, let them rest. Second, don't bring advice, do bring soup. The Bible says next, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. That's 1 Kings 19.6. Third, don't try and solve, do validate their feelings. The angel of the Lord comes back a second time and touches Elijah and says, quote, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. Do you notice the first thing the Lord does for his depressed servant is nothing? He doesn't counsel him, doesn't lecture. He sends an angel and all the angel does is cook. Yep, I'm going to say it. It's angel food cake. (laughs) But then he lets him go back to sleep. He lets him go back to sleep. He wakes him up a second time, cooks him another meal. This time, did you notice with the tiniest statement of validation, the journey is too much for you. No lectures, very few words. Because there is almost nothing you can say to someone in depression that's going to make them feel better. But there's a whole lot you can say that's going to make them feel worse. What you can do is you can move toward the pain and you can validate their feelings. You can validate their feelings. That sounds so hard. I'm so sorry. Please do not try and fix or solve. Did you notice? Never noticed before that God's messenger touched him. It's 1 Kings 19.5. Maybe the person you care about would just like to have their feet rubbed or hand on their shoulder. I bet you they'd like that more than advice. Fourth, don't talk about God to them. Talk to them. Talk to God about them. (laughs) Don't talk about God to them. Talk to God about them. Yes, we all need to be reminded of God's promises, but perhaps the best way you can care for someone you love is to plead those promises for them in prayer. Because it's true, we all need what Elijah eventually experienced, if you go on and read that chapter. The presence of the Lord. But in that famous story, do you remember that the Lord did not come in the earthquake or the wind or the fire? That is, in demonstrations of power, of of control. That's what we try and do and help the people we love with power and control. And it never works. It never works. Oh, Lord, how I yearn to be still and to be encountered by you, the still small voice. You might ask, how might that begin to happen for ourselves or those we love? Well, we can see from the Lord's own care of Elijah, he employs a multifaceted approach that addresses the whole person. But it begins with patiently sitting with Elijah in his pain, letting him sleep, tending to his physical needs and his emotional needs. Then, only after the care has been felt, it was tasted, only after it was felt, the care, coming to him not just in powerfully dramatic ways, but through his still, small voice. That is, how does the Lord come to Elijah? The same way he comes to us, through his word. And yes, that is what we need. We need the consolation of God's promises through his word. 
And that word assures us that there will be times when no words will do. And you will feel helpless. You will feel helpless. His word tells us that. And you feel helpless to help the ones you love the most. There's a line in the uh, book, A River Runs Through It, where Norman McLean says, and so it is those we live with and love the most who often elude us. What can we do? We can pray. You say, I tried that. I believe you. But like Elijah, the story's not over. And hope that is seen is no hope at all for who hopes for what he sees. You stand vigil through the night beside the one you love. You wait and hope. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word that assures us and reminds us that we're not alone, that we're not the only one who feels this way, for reminding us there's no shame in being human and that it takes great courage to raise our hand and ask for help. God, remind us that your power is operative in our lives only to the degree that we will admit and live out of our need of it. And Lord, by your spirit, give us strength to pour out our emotions and hope against hope. And Lord, I pray for those hearing my voice that need a hope they cannot see. Would you plant an imperishable seed of hope in our hearts? Lord, have mercy. You're close to the brokenhearted. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.